How She Does It is proudly supported by iShares, a global leader in ETFs. With over 1,250 products worldwide, iShares is dedicated to providing you with cutting-edge investment solutions for an ever-changing market. Let your best investor out. Take control of your investments and learn more about the importance of incorporating ETFs into your investment strategy. Visit iShares.com. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for How She Does It, where we talk about all things women, money, and power. I'm Karen Feinerman. Whether we're meeting for the first time or you've seen me on CNBC's Fast Money or maybe have a copy of my book, Feinerman's Rules, let me offer a warm welcome. As co-founder and CEO of Metropolitan Capital Advisors, I've gotten to work with some extraordinary women over the years. And whether we've been strategizing in a conference room or laughing together at a cocktail party, we've shared some incredible conversations. But here's the thing. I wanted to be able to actually share those conversations to ensure those brilliant insights could reach all women. And that's why I'm here with you today. And to be honest, I'm delighted to get some one-on-one time with these extraordinary women. On every episode of How She Does It, you'll be listening in to a conversation with a female leader, leaders in all industries, who make their own space and build their careers in unique ways. Our show is about a woman's place in the world and in the economy, but it's also about our power, our emotions, careers, families, and so much more. We'll hear their stories of often circuitous paths to get to where they are, and most importantly, what they learned along the way. We will hear their biggest challenges, the keys to their success, their biggest disappointments or failures, and how they move past it. And on today's episode, we're doing it all with Melissa Lee, who you may know best as the host of CNBC's Fast Money. She also hosts the Options Action Program. Melissa has won countless awards for her hosting and reporting, including a Gracie for Outstanding News Host and a Loeb for her special report on the fall of Lehman Brothers. She's twice been Emmy-nominated and has several incredible documentaries under her belt, which we'll link in the show notes so you can catch them all. But Melissa wasn't always in the financial news business. After graduating from Harvard, she started her career as a consultant at Mercer Management, and then, like many of the most talented women I've had the pleasure of working with, she decided to pivot. And that pivot is what got her to where she is today. I am so excited to dive in with you today, Melissa. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'd love to start by having you tell us about you, your career at CNBC, and your career evolution. What were the pivotal moments that got you where you are today? I've been an anchor at CNBC for probably 15 years, at CNBC for north of 20 years, and I've done probably every single job in the newsroom. I started as a general assignment reporter, then I specialized in banking and private equity and hedge funds, and I moved on to being an anchor for Fast Money, which airs at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday on CNBC. To get here, though, you know, there's no one single path guaranteed to become an anchor on TV, as you could imagine. I started as a production assistant at CNN Financial News. And from there, you know, I always had it in my head that I wanted to be on air. I didn't go there to print scripts for the rest of my life or fetch coffee for other people. (laughs) But to plot that, you sort of had to see where the opportunity was in the newsroom. So I would tag along with reporters while they reported stories, while they went out on shoots. I would volunteer to log the tape for them, do anything to make their lives easier so they would continue taking me on shoots. 
And eventually I said, you know what, I want to be a producer. I want to track to being on air. I met with the manager and he said, look, we want to sign you on a contract to be a producer, but there's no guarantee that you will be able to make a tape. There's no guarantee that you will be on air, nothing. And I said, thank you very much, but I'm going to leave. So I left for Bloomberg where it was sort of just, they were starting up their TV operations and it was like the wild west of TV. Every opportunity was available because there were no clear lines. And so I saw that that had more potential for me to become on air. And that's actually where I got my start because of that sort of just wide open field where everybody was doing everything. And so I ran the assignment desk, I produced stories for other reporters, and eventually I said, look, I'm writing these scripts for other reporters to voice. Can I do one? And my boss said, you know what? We'll give you a try. So I did it and I tracked my first package, which means basically you do the voiceover for the piece of tape. And it was a series on IPOs. And he said to another boss, she sounds kind of young. And the other boss said, well, <laughs> she is. So there's not much you can do about that. But they gave me a shot. They let me sit on set. I answered questions afterwards on set. I was terrified. I was probably drenched in sweat that day. And that was the start. But you had to see where the opportunity is and just press, make your case and just say, I am worth a shot. Please give me a shot. I love that you were able to push to get the opportunities that you wanted and build that into the career you have today. You talked about the Wild West of early financial television, but before that, you had a very different path set out, at least in part by your parents' influence or maybe an idea of what you should do with your life. What was it like to take the road less traveled? <laughs> well, actually, there are a couple of paths that my parents would have approved of me taking. Obviously, eventually, they approved of my path. <laughs> <laughs> but early on, I was going to be pre-med, and I had all the desire to be a doctor. And I had actually done a lot of laboratory work in high school, and I was pre-med in college. But I was spending a lot of time at the Crimson, which is the daily newspaper at Harvard. And push came to shove. You know, you only have so much time in the day, plus just having the life of a college student. And so studying organic chemistry really just went away, <laughs> which is a real problem for my GPA and for my parents. And I said, you know what, I'm not going to be a doctor. And I left that dream behind. So that was the first sort of disappointment <laughs> to my parents in terms of taking the path less favored. But then after I did all these internships in newspapers in college, and when I graduated or when I was about to graduate, I couldn't get a job. It was a terrible time in the newspaper industry. Print costs were really high. Staffs were shrinking. And so I just couldn't find a job. So I, I decided, you know, I would pursue business. Everybody around me was interviewing for investment banking and consulting. And I said, you know, I could probably be a consultant. I'll just give it a whirl. So I did that. I got a job as a consultant. I took it because I, my parents said, look, you've got loans. We're done. <laughs> You're going to be on your own. You got to figure it out. So I said, okay, I better take this job because I'm going to have a loan to pay off soon. So I did that. So things were good. You know, I did a lot of work in banking and credit cards in Boston. I live with my college roommates. It was all fine and good. And then it got to a point where they said, we will pay for your business school, but you have to come back and quote unquote pay off that debt by working for us for three years. And I was like, oh, that's a long time. I'm going to be like 24. <laughs> <laughs> I said, that's so old. What am I going to do? 
And so I was talking it over with my father, who, you know, is my number one source of advice on these sorts of things. And he said, it's free education. You should never turn down education. Having a degree means that you're qualified to do something. <laughs> and so you should take this. My After a while, I thought about it. I said, you know, I think that if I don't pursue journalism, I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life. I, I think I need to give it a try. And he said, I think you're making the biggest mistake of your life. And I was like, I guess we'll see. <laughs> I said, if I don't get on the air by the time I'm 30, which seemed like really long time, like so long to make it work, <laughs> then I will go back to business school. And he said, fine. And so I moved home. And that was sort of the other disappointment for my parents. And it wasn't easy. You know, I lived at home after living at college on your own. It's hard to always <laughs> be under the thumb of your parents. I worked the graveyard shift, so I would get it into work at 4 a.m. and leave at noon. But it was something that I really wanted. And I think ever since then, I always operated on this belief of what would be your bigger regret of the two choices? What will you look back on and say, you know what? I wish I had done that. Nothing is going to be perfect. And you won't know, you know, without hindsight, what the perfect decision is. But you do sort of know what you would regret more. And so that was the framework for a lot of decisions, actually, in my life after that. Well, you're extremely good at your job. And I think everyone who watches your show is so happy you pursued the path that you did. You're the centerpiece of the show, Fast Money. You sit at a unique crossroads of media and money. You approve all the content, the guests, the panelists, the look and feel of the show. Everything goes through you. So what are you hoping to accomplish with this show from both a media perspective and a Wall Street perspective? I want it to be a show that is accessible to both the home investor as well as sophisticated people on Wall Street. I want everybody to be able to walk away with something. I really firmly believe that Wall Street is not just for people who've studied it, people who operate in it. It's for everybody. I mean, if we operate on the belief that the stock market is a transmission mechanism, which I do believe because that philosophy has helped generations of immigrants, for instance, become established in this country, send children to college. You know, it's funny the way the show is conceived is, you know, you have these four professional traders and it's like a, a post-game show, like an ESPN feeling show. And the first group of people who are on that show were all men. They're these beefy, hulky kind of men filled with testosterone because that was sort of the feel, I think, when the show is conceived of what Wall Street was. And so they would come off the quote unquote playing field, making their trades all day. And then they would come into the locker room, which was the set, and talk about it. And the show had to evolve. And I think it had to evolve for a lot of reasons. It had to evolve because we needed to be more reflective of what Wall Street was becoming and who the investor base was becoming. And that was more female, more democratized. They brought me in and things had to change. And I think it changed for the better. It made it much more inclusive. And I think that we can reach more people by being much more inclusive. So not only can we talk to the most sophisticated investors, because we have very smart people with a lot of experience like you, Karen, but we can also talk to the people who may not have so much money. We can all relate to that. We've all had points in our family history where we were striving for something better. That may have been generations ago, that may be right now, but everybody's striving for something better. And that's what I hope the show helps people do. 
Mm-hmm. So another take on part of the show that I want to talk to you about. So the financial news business, as you said, well, the financial business has many women. The financial news business actually has probably even more women. But we know that Wall Street is still overwhelmingly white and male. And I don't think we're completely behind the idea that investing is a masculine thing, which is maybe how the show started. But one thing I've always loved about the way you manage fast money is that you aren't afraid to challenge the, quote, authorities or the CEOs or the money managers that come on. You do your homework and you know enough going into every show that if a CEO or money manager is trying to bullshit you, you know how to sort of respond to that and either call them out on it or let them know they're not going to be able to bullshit you anymore. I think that we owe it to people to ask the tough questions. We don't want to be a platform for somebody to be able to pull the wool over, not just our eyes on the show, but anybody who is watching the show. I feel very strongly that we are speaking and we deliver information on behalf of the investing public or for the investing public. And so we need to be that voice to push back. And I always think, what's the worst case scenario? What have I got to lose by trying to shed the truth on something? The guy never comes back. So be it. He's pissed off. So be it. He rips his mic off. You know, maybe that's better for ratings. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I think that we have to do that. And I, and I don't want to say that other people or other shows allow that to happen. But I think that there's sort of this notion of this is a big interview. This is a big get. We want them to come back. Yeah, I want them to come back. But if they're going to lie to me every single time or try and massage the truth, I don't want them back. I don't want to be taken advantage of. I don't want the viewer to be taken advantage of. And that's sort of the attitude that I have. If you don't want to come back to the show because you can't take a fair question, so be it. Find someplace else. So while we're on the topic of challenges, I want to talk about the importance of being able to challenge as a woman. In other words, the importance of being able to challenge your boss in a salary negotiation or the importance of being able to challenge the status quo when faced with an injustice or the importance of being able to rise to any challenge you may face. Is there a challenge muscle that you've built or that we can build as women? And what does that look like? I always think it's interesting to think about women not, and trust me, it's not an easy thing to, to for instance, negotiate with your boss. But as women, we face so many challenges every day. We never take no for an answer. When we're mothers, we don't take no for an answer. If it's a matter of your child and saying that there's something wrong to the doctor, you need to see them right now. We don't take no for an answer, and yet we are willing to take no for an answer in so many other aspects of our own lives. So we have that muscle, and it's just a matter of using that in other ways. I think as women, we're not as willing as men, and this may be controversial, to just say, we can do it. I think we are more thoughtful <laughs> in acknowledging what our weaknesses are. And so we let that cloud our judgment. We don't focus on the strengths enough. And I think that's sort of a, a difference, not a forever difference, that maybe it's a generational difference between women and men. And I think that really impacts how we go about challenging a situation at work, challenging our boss, negotiating our salary. We are too willing to look at the, well, this may not work out because of this, or I am not as strong on this, although I'm pretty good at that. If we were men, we'd probably say, I'm damn good at X, Y, and Z, period. I think we need to have a little bit of that. I think it's always good to recognize your own weaknesses, 
But you know what? When you're negotiating with your boss, maybe <laughs> don't recognize them that much. I also think that you just have nothing to lose, really, if you ask for more. And I, with my most recent salary negotiation, I did it myself. I didn't have an agent, and I unfortunately had a great relationship with my boss and was able to do that. And I did ask for more money because I thought, what have I got to lose? And I always think about my mom. My mom, you know, she was a career woman at a time when there weren't too many career women. She wasn't, quote unquote, certified to do anything with the degree. She was very entrepreneurial and did a lot of different things. But she never took no for an answer. She always said to me, what have you got to lose? Even if it's the smallest things. I remember when we were in China and we just climbed the Great Wall of China. It was a family trip. And we come off the Great Wall. And at the base, there's a vendor. And she's selling T-shirts that say, I just climbed the Great Wall of China. <laughs> and my mom wanted to buy you know, a, a T-shirt for every member of the family, of course, because we just climbed the Great Wall of China. And so the vendor named her price. I forgot what it was. My mom said, no, how about 10 t-shirts for one US dollar? And the lady was like, okay. And she's like, well, I figured I had nothing to lose. And this is like a very small example. But at every point in time, you've got nothing to lose by asking for it. And I think that we lose sight of, eh, we'll just, just go with it. Just accept it. That's fine. It's close enough. No, you've got nothing to lose. Go for it. So sometimes it feels like women think they're going to be punished for being too aggressive. And do you think that is true, even though it shouldn't stop you from, you know, go for it anyway? But do you think that's true? Did you ever feel punished for being aggressive? I have felt punished for being aggressive on the job, for sure. I think women's aggression is perceived differently from a man's aggression. I think women being aggressive is much more apt to be interpreted as being a bitch or being bitchy or, you know, all of those negative connotations. But for a man, he's just aggressive. He's a go-getter. Right. And confident. and Exactly. Confident. And, and for women, it's completely different. I think it is changing. But you know what? <laughs> what are you going to do? You have to rise to the occasion. And whatever the world thinks of you or around you, so be it. And it takes a while for people or women to come to that. I never thought that until I was much more established in my career. Certainly, even 10 years ago, I was much more concerned about what the perception would be if I were aggressive, if I asked that hard question, if I pushed and pushed and pushed. Now, I don't care. And maybe it's just a matter of knowing yourself over time, knowing your worth over time, a combination of all of that. But I wish, you know, especially younger women would remember that. Be who you are, be who you need to be. And whatever the perception is around you in the world, that's their problem. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good lesson for women. And actually, they can sort of learn that from men. Men don't care so much how they're going to be perceived, and they think they'll be perceived well. And you know what? That's maybe a lesson women can take from men. Absolutely. Are you ready to find a better way to invest? iShares, the global leader in ETFs, can help you take control of your portfolio and stay on top of your financial future. In a time marked by economic uncertainty, iShares helps investors unleash their potential with timely market insights from its investment strategy teams to help individuals make sense of current markets. No matter what the state of the world, you can pursue your financial goals. Let your best investor out. 
Visit iShares.com to explore investment insights and solutions. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So let me switch gears. In addition to your career and all the challenges you have with that, you've also built an incredible family. You are married with twins who are almost three years old, which is perhaps the most exhausting of all ages. You had them after you were very established in your career. But can you talk about what that transition was like for you and how you arranged or rearranged your priorities? You know, it's funny. In many ways, it was easier, right? When you're establishing your career, you're financially set. You have already earned your place in the workplace in terms of, you know, your position and your status. But at the same time, it was a real sort of adjustment in how... I thought about myself and how I thought other people would perceive me. I was a little worried that the perception of me would change completely, that I would all of a sudden be viewed as, you know, prioritizing my family first, being softer, being not as hardworking. It was funny. I never thought that that would be the case, but I really struggled with that, especially with the pregnancy too. I didn't want to be succumb to morning sickness or admit that I was <laughs> had morning sickness because I thought it was a, it could be perceived as a weakness. And I was worried that they, I wouldn't get the assignments. I wouldn't get the big projects because, oh, she's got a family now. And I have to be clear, my employer is fantastic and there's no evidence or reason for me to ever think that. But I think that you have a certain perception of yourself and all of a sudden it fundamentally changes and it has to change. And so there's that sort of transition where you yourself in how you think about yourself changes. And I think that was an initially a, a hard thing. And then the second transition, I'm sure there's going to be many, many, many to come, is just how do you balance it all? And the guilt associated with that, I mean, I find it's tremendous sometimes where you think, why shouldn't I take them to music class? Why shouldn't I do that? Why can't I wake up with them and put them to bed every single day? Well, you know, life happens and work happens, and sometimes you cannot do that. But you think, oh, but they are the number one thing in my whole world that I love the most. So why shouldn't I give them everything? And fact of the matter is you cannot give them everything. You can't give everything everything. <laughs> and I think and I think that's a major transition, too, because before when you're just thinking about yourself, you gave everything to you choose your social life, your friends, your family, your work. And for many years for me, I gave everything to my work. And that had to change too. And so that's a transition that's, I think, ongoing and probably will be ongoing 
until the kids are in college. Maybe forever it'll keep going. <laughs> so how do you deal with that guilt? What do you tell yourself to assuage that guilt if you can't be there for the whatever it is? Well, I mean, part of it is you have to earn a living. Part of it is you are a better person for being a strong career woman, I think. I think that you're sending an example and a tone for both. I have a son and a daughter for both of them. So my daughter knows that you can be successful in your career and have a family. I want her to have that example. I hope that she will have that in her own life. And it's also an example for my son to want to have a wife who can do that too, to appreciate a woman who is strong in her career and who prioritizes career in herself. You know, in the end, it's all for them in every single way. But even the example that you set for your children, I think that it helps them growing up to see this, that you see somebody who has to walk out the door, has to sometimes say, you know what, I can't be here because I've got something else to do for my family. I want them to do that too. Mm -hmm. You said it best, you can't give everything everything. And it's hard. It's so true. true. And it's simplicity. Right. And it's obvious. And yet you don't really come to grips with that until you have to. And you're like, oh, wow, I really can't right. do it. All right. So you're no stranger to making a pivot. And those moments of transition look different for all of us, depending on our industry, our personal lives, so many other factors. So how do you know when it's time for a change? And where I'm going with this is, did you ever, even for a second, think about staying home with the kids? No. I knew that I would always go back to work. I love what I do and I, I respect immensely. I have plenty of friends, actually, who my college roommates who chose, you know, they were lawyers. They made partner at their law firm. They decided that they would stay home to raise their children. And I respect that completely. But for me, that wasn't the right choice. I mean, for one thing, I want to earn a living. I enjoy what I do. And I feel like in my small way, I could make a little bit of difference in the world for a lot of people. And so why should I give that platform up? I feel passionately that the stock market should be unlocked for people. And if I can do that just a little bit every single day and help somebody save for college, save up for a house, make a better decision, then I think that that's what I need to do. So that's sort of, I mean, I don't know if you can call TV journalism a calling, but... <laughs> In a way, I think that's my calling as well, in, in addition to being a mom. In terms of evolving, I mean, the show Fast Money has been around for a long time, and, and we've evolved, I think, continuously. And I don't think that there's ever a reason to evolve and to pivot. I think that the best pivots and evolutions are not because you've reached some point where you have to, where it's a disaster, but you're constantly reevaluating. And so you're making small pivots along the way. I think that in life, it's better, if you can, to evolve slowly. And so you're always sort of matching the times around you as opposed to getting to a point where you are almost obsolete <laughs> or some disaster happens. Granted, that does happen. And that is the catalyst for pivot or evolution for many people. And sometimes in life, that has to happen. But I tried to sort of reevaluate, not on a daily basis, but it's a constant process for me. This conversation makes me think about women, not just in power, but women in money. 
And I was recently having a conversation about women in the financial space with a Wharton professor, and an interesting question came up. He was a finance professor, and he said, why are there fewer women in finance than men? So I theorized that when you're a finance major, you're declaring openly that you want to make money and that maybe women are just less comfortable with that. Do you think there's anything to that theory? I think that there's a lot of truth in that, actually. I mean, I think part of it is generational. Part of it is what we were talking about before in terms of the difference between men and women and how men are willing to project confidence. I'm going to go out there and make money. I'm going to be, you know, a king of finance. And women aren't that way, I think, in general, by nature. I think it's changing. I think that the way women should think about money is a much more practical way, not just that you want to accumulate wealth and have cars and mansions, et cetera, but that it's your path to independence. That's the way you ensure your independence. And why wouldn't you as a woman in this day and age, especially if you're in a graduate program, why wouldn't you want to make sure that you are independent, independent of a man? And that's not to say that you're not going to be married or have a husband, but I think that you always want to know that if the world came down around you and you were left standing, that you can be on your own and you could support your family on your own. And I think wealth gives you that ticket and that confidence to go out in life and live it. So I hope that that changes. I hope that women perceive money not just as something dirty or not quite moral, but it's independence. My mom always said that to me. She said, that's the way you are independent, education and money. <laughs> Right. Both are power. All right. So would you ever consider working on Wall Street as an investor? I think you would be uniquely good at it for three reasons. One, you're very smart. Two, you work really hard. And three, you're not ruled by your emotions, meaning that you're able to look at things with a very sort of detached view without getting sort of caught up in the ego of things. You know, that's been like a superpower. And some people would say that's a, like a personality fault as well. <laughs> it could be perceived as very cold, <laughs> my ability to compartmentalize. But for a trader, I guess that would be good because I, I would have no emotional attachment to any one position and be willing to cut my losses pretty easily. <laughs> so, you know, I, that didn't work out and I'm moving on. It appeals to me, but I, I also know that it's a tough life. I talked to you about trades and theoretical trades, but it's a lot easier to talk about theoretical trades and what I would do and, and not do and how I would manage a position than actually doing it. And I fully recognize that it's completely different and that if it were actual money on the line, then maybe my emotions would enter. I don't know. But things do change when you've got skin in the game, right? So in theory, it would be interesting. I don't think that I have the fortitude for it, shall we say? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let me ask you this. If you could make any substantive change in the way that Wall Street works, what would you change and why or how? Uh, that's a really tough one. I think, I don't know if there's like one sweeping thing. We've talked about a couple things. I, I think all the things I think about that could be better is sort of trying to scratch at making Wall Street more democratized. So a lot of it is transparency. So we've talked about, you know, how you know, investors disclose their big holdings, 13F filings that come out every quarter. Well, for one, they're dated. And in this day and age, why do we have to get quarterly filings that are so 
backward looking? Why can't they be a little bit more real time? Things are filed electronically these days. There's no reason why you have to wait a, a whole reporting period to get that information. And then also there's the notion that these are longs. Why can't you have the full picture of how an investor is investing? So also shorts, are they betting not just for the stock? Are they betting against something? And that's left off there. I think the notion of a dual class structure where there are super voting shares, I think that should go away. Granted, we've always said, and we've said this on Fast Money many times, many companies that have this voting structure with stock where one share could equal 10 votes, for instance, just as an example, that if you're an investor, you can vote with your feet. You don't have to buy into that sort of structure and be minimized in terms of your voice, in terms your vote being smaller than that super voting share. But that doesn't really happen, does it? I mean, these are large companies and, and they're in index funds that a lot of individual investors own. And so I think that there are things like that that can be changed. I don't know if this last thing can be changed. I really wish that there would be more, and this is not about Wall Street per se, but I wish there were more education at an earlier age about the stock market, not just money and not just about a bank account and credit cards and things like that. But about Wall Street, why can't we start learning that very early? What is a stock? How does that work? What do you get when you buy a stock? If we're thinking that this is going to be the vehicle for people to retire, for people to save up for college, then we have to embed that lesson early on. And I don't think that's happening right now. No, I think you're right. And, you know, if compounding is the most powerful force in the universe, starting early is really important. Right. I think it's an excellent point and something that I've been involved with and I think is really important is the Council for Economic Education, which has developed a curriculum for K through 12. And it's very important for people to learn. And yet only about 26 states in the United States require any kind of personal finance in school before kids graduate. And that to me just seems a really lost opportunity. That's a shame. And I think that educators should start pushing for that much more in terms of the adoption of that kind of curriculum in their classroom. I think that parents have a role in this too, but oftentimes, especially when you're talking about parents who are immigrants or who come from a background that you may not have had the experience of the stock market per se, you may not realize that that's what you need to know because you don't know about it. You yourself were not educated. You don't understand the power of compounding, for instance. And so the onus shifts a little bit. It's not just parents saying, we need our children to learn about this. They don't know that their children need to learn about this. So we in this business need to make sure that that message is out there and pushed. Excellent point. All right, I have one last question for you before we move on. What's something that even people who feel like they know you because they watch every day on CNBC don't know about you? Wow. I feel <laughs> if I really had to pick like a perfect Sunday, and this is like before kids though, and I sort of wish I could do this now sometimes, but I don't. I would just sit in bed and watch Netflix. Like I totally on board <laughs> binging and just eating bad food for you. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if people would ever think that I would do that, but I would 100% do that. And I used to do that when I didn't have kids because sometimes you just need to decompress. Sometimes I just don't want to talk to anybody, including my family. I talk, 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 talk all week long, and I just don't want to talk to anybody, and I don't want to think about anything intellectually. 
So I'll binge The Crown or <laughs> whatever it is that's hot on Netflix. <laughs> so that indulgent day sounds absolutely perfect to me. Unfortunately, I feel like there's this expectation that women in power always have to be on. I wonder if that complete disconnect is something all women need to be doing, just letting ourselves completely relax and recharge without any expectation of what we should be doing. What do you think? I think everybody needs to do that in their own way. I mean, your recharging, Karen, may be getting on the Peloton <laughs> or working out. And for me, it's like the opposite. It's being a sloth on my sofa or in my bed. But I, I think that we are so hard charging. You know, we've got so many things going on. We've got so many demands on our time and on our energy that sometimes you just need to pay attention to yourself. Because if you're not 100%, you're not going to be there for anybody else or for anything else either. If you're feeling really run down, are you going to be a, a great investor or TV anchor? Are you going to be a great mom? Probably not. So, you know, whether it be going to the gym, going shopping, taking a walk, whatever it is that you do to decompress and to find yourself again, just to have a quiet moment to yourself, you do it. For me, it's oftentimes staying up a little bit too late and watching mindless TV. That's like my mini version of what I used to do before I had kids. But it's really important for me to have that half hour just sitting in bed, watching mindless TV and just sort of like, that's it. This is the end of my day. This is my time. And I'm just going to enjoy it. I totally get it. I once had an analyst, a really excellent analyst who worked for me, and he would do great work. But every afternoon, if I walked by his office, he would be playing solitaire. And at our sort of year-end thing, I said, Greg, you do fantastic work. love working with you, but what's with the solitaire every day? And he's like, you know, I work really hard, and then I just need to rest my mind and regroup. All right, I'll buy that. I'm on board. Solitaire or Netflix binging? <laughs> so here we go. You may know this best as Would You Rather, a game we like to play on the show. The only challenge is that you can't think about the answer. You just have to say whatever comes into your mind. Okay, ready? Ready. Okay. Optimist or pessimist? Pessimist. Power or money? Power. The Crown or Bridgerton? Crown. Shake Shack or La Bernadette? Shake Shack. Wine or scotch? Scotch. Have someone be mean to you or lie to you? But I'd rather be mean to me. Extra sleep or be the only one up? Only one up. Receive a compliment or a constructive criticism from someone you trust? Constructive criticism. Know the future for certain or be surprised? Know the future. Last one. Laugh or be moved? Be moved. Okay. Excellent. Thank you again, Melissa. Where can our audience find you? 5 p.m. Monday through Friday on CNBC's Fast Money. And Options Action. And Options Action. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Melissa. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today on How She Does It. I hope this conversation was as compelling to you as it was to me. Thank you so much to Melissa Lee for her time and brilliant insight. I loved her thoughts on following her dream, even when it meant going backwards first. I hope you, like me, can't help but be inspired by the bravery of those on the road less traveled. When you have a moment, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to updates from the Her Money community at hermoney.com forward slash subscribe. 
We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is from Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you here with us again. Onward. <laughs>